Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 8, 1905 in England, Up the Duff. Following defeat in the 1903-04 Ashes, the Australians would only have to wait just over a year for a chance at revenge, with a tour of England in 1905 in the works. As such, the 1904-05 Shield season would be the opportunity for players to push for selection. Once again, it was New South Wales that dominated, winning all four of their matches to claim their fourth shield in a row. South Australia and Victoria split their matches, with victories going to the visiting side in each. Noble, Howell and Trumper led the way with the bat for New South Wales, whilst Cotter and Hopkins impressed with the ball. The biggest development of the season, though, was the return of Joe Darling to the South Australian side after a two-year absence. The former Australian captain produced middling results, only averaging 22 with a highest score of 67 across his four matches, but his history of success as both a batsman and a captain on previous tours of England would weigh heavily upon the selectors' minds. Meanwhile, off the field, the stop-start attempts to create a national board of control for cricket in Australia were finally reaching a crescendo. Led by William McElhone of New South Wales and Ernie Bean of Victoria, the boards of each state association were looking to take away the power held by the players and the high-profile cricket clubs like Melbourne and Sydney. Gaining support of the South Australian Cricket Association, McElhone and Bean drafted a constitution for the Australian Board of Control for International Cricket. This board would be responsible for organising all tours of and by Australia, as well as the appointment of umpires and admission of any changes to the laws of cricket. On the 6th of January 1905, representatives of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australian associations signed the draft constitution of the board. The constitution had been structured in such a way as to give those three states control, with each allowed to sit two delegates on the board. Test and Shield players would be allowed to nominate one delegate each. Many of the associations would dominate the eight-person board. Queensland, Western Australia and Tasmania were not invited to join, which would cause issues down the road as English authorities would not consider the board to be representative of Australian cricket as a whole. However, this move had strong pushback from the groups most likely to lose out in the creation of the board. Key players in South Australian cricket in Clem Hill, Joe Darling and George Giffen opposed the creation of the board, meaning that South Australia wouldn't immediately sign up and only attended the first meeting as observers. The major cricket clubs, who had enjoyed a degree of power in local affairs like the Marleybone Cricket Club did in England, were also against the move. The Melbourne Cricket Club had written to other Victorian clubs explaining why a board was not needed, for example. McAlhone and Bean pushed on though, and even offered for the soon-to-be-established board to fund and organise the next tour of England. Unwilling to cede control to a body they had little faith in, the players declined, funding the tour via a loan from the Melbourne Cricket Club. This was a direct snub of the board, as McElhone and Bean both had a loathing for the Melbourne club. This, however, would be one of the last gasps of player dominance of international touring, as it would be the final time the players would have a key role in selecting the touring squad and captain. After his return to Shield cricket, there was little surprise that Darling was chosen for the squad, given his history of success touring England. He would also return to his position as captain. Many experienced tourists joined him, including Noble, Armstrong, Hill, Trumper, Hopkins, Duff, Gregory, McLeod, Kelly and Howe. Three new tourists would join the side, 
with Connor and Gers, who had made their debuts in the previous series, joined by Phil Newland from South Australia as the backup wicketkeeper. This selection came as somewhat of a surprise, as Hanson Carter, who had been the reserve on the 1902 tour, was seen by most cricket pundits as a superior wicketkeeper and batsman to Newland. The main reason for Newland's selection seemed to be that he came from a family well-connected with the Adelaide establishment, of which Darling was well acquainted, which got him a spot on the tour. The most surprising omission was that of Jack Saunders, with a side travelling without a left-arm bowling option. It would come out subsequent to the tour that he'd been deliberately omitted due to fears he may have been called for throwing, something which would never happen across his 14-year career. The 15th man in the squad was another previous tour veteran, Frank Laver. Whilst a quality player in his own right, the main reason he was chosen for the tour was to act as a team manager and treasurer, a role filled by Ben Wardle in previous years. Laver was extremely popular and was always focused first and foremost on the needs of the players, which would cause conflicts in later years when the board would prefer a man aligned with their interests in charge of tour finances. The tour also saw the introduction of an official scorer and baggageman in Bill Ferguson. Ferguson came about the job by chance, as he was a patient at Monty Noble's dentistry practice. Ferguson will remain in the role of team scorer for the next 52 years. The 1905 tour would take a different path than their predecessors. Instead of departing from Adelaide and heading across the Indian Ocean and through the Suez Canal, this side would begin with a tour of New Zealand before travelling across the Pacific and stopping in Fiji. They would then continue to North America, taking a train cross-country and then boarding a ship over the Atlantic to England. Darling, though, would take the more direct route to England and miss the New Zealand part of the trip, leaving the captaincy of that to Noble. Following the completion of the Shield season, the Australians departed for their tour of New Zealand. The Australians won three of the four matches against the New Zealand provinces, some of which were against sides of 22, before facing combined New Zealand sides in two first-class matches to end the tour. The New Zealand side featured two former Australian Test cricketers, Harry Graham and Sid Calloway, who had moved to New Zealand following their Test careers, whilst the matches were umpired by first Test hero Charles Bannerman. The first match was drawn, but featured an outstanding all-round performance from Armstrong, who scored a century before taking five wickets in each innings. The second match was a victory by an innings and 358 runs by the Australians, with Trumper and Hill scoring rapid-fired centuries and sharing a partnership of 269. The Australians also played a match against an 18 of Fiji during their stopover, before completing their journey to England via the overland route through Canada and the USA. During the trip, Newland fractured his jaw playing a deck cricket match, causing him pain for much of the tour. The Australians arrived in England on the 26th of April, eight days before their first match at Crystal Palace against the Gentlemen of England. Darling joined the squad and took charge, whilst the Gentlemen were captained by WG Grace and also featured McLaren, Fry, Warner and Jessup. Les Poitavan, who was from New South Wales and had nearly played for Australia on the previous tour, was also in the Gentlemen's side. The Australians set a massive target of 641 for victory, built around 162 from Monty Noble, but the match ended in a draw, with the gentlemen three wickets down. On the other side of the world, the first meeting of the board control was taking place, right as the Australians took the field against the gentlemen. This was done by design to make sure that Darling, the most implacable opponent of the board, would be away for four months due to the Ashes tour, allowing them time to establish control and prepare for his return. It also gave them time to crush opposition coming from the Melbourne Cricket Club. The opening meeting was dominated by New South Wales and Victoria, with South Australia and Queensland only sending observers, whilst WA and Tasmania refused to send anyone. The other states would join over the following years, leading to the consolidation of power over cricket within the board. The Australians continued to build up to the first test, taking place at the end of the May in Nottingham. They played six further matches in that time, 
Drawing the first two before going on a four-match winning streak, defeating Oxford University, the Gentlemen of England in a return match, Yorkshire and Lancashire by big margins. The outstanding bowler was Labour, ostensibly there as the treasurer, who took 46 wickets in five games with his right arm mediums, including 13 against Oxford and 12 against Yorkshire. Armstrong also excelled, scoring 112 against Nottinghamshire and a mammoth 248 not out against the gentlemen. The match against Surrey was also notable as they faced a young Jack Hobbs, who was featuring in his debut season, a man who would go on to be one of the biggest adversaries faced by Australian bowlers in years to come. The Australians then went into the first test at Trent Bridge full of confidence, looking to make sure that the loss in 0304 would just be an aberration. Labour's form made it impossible to ignore, whilst the top six of Duff, Trumper, Hill, Noble, Armstrong and Darling was arguably the best put together by any Australian side to that point. Cotter, Gregory, McLeod and Kelly made up the rest of the side, with Hopkins, Gers, Howell and Newland all missing out. The English side that the Australians came up with was one of the best organised of the home country had put together. For the first time, the English authorities prioritised test cricket above county cricket and made sure that the best players would be available for selection. They also overlooked Archie McLaren and Pelham Warner as possibilities to captain and settled on Stanley Jackson. Jackson was an excellent choice as players like McLaren and Fry, who had previously bristled at playing under what they considered to be lesser players than themselves, had no such complaints about playing under Jackson. That said, the English still had some difficulty putting together their side. George Hurst, otherwise a first choice selection, was struggling with a leg injury and was not selected whilst Fry damaged a finger badly prior to the match and sat out, despite being in the original squad. The team was still a strong one, with all players having played tests before. Jackson was joined by Hayward, Jones, Tildesley, McLaren, Jessup, Lilly, Rhodes, Arnold and John Gunn. The 11th man was a dangerous Bosanquay, fresh off his success down under the previous tour. The pitching conditions for the opening day's play could scarcely have been better, as put by Wisden, and when Jackson won the toss and elected to bat, the 15,000 strong crowd were expectant that the home side would run up a big score. Hayward and Jones opened for England, facing the bowler of Cotter and Labour. The two bowlers complemented each other well, as Labour's consistency at one end allowed Cotter to attack with raw pace. The young fast bowler sent numerous balls past the batsman's nose, with the keeper standing well back and taking them above his head. He bowled three consecutive bumpers to Hayward before a sharp Yorker rattled the stumps, with Hayward bowl for five with a score only at six. Tilsey came to the crease and took advantage of some wayward bowling to move the score along, but Labour's method at the other end also showed it could be effective when he bowled Jones for six. McLaren and then Jackson both fell cheaply, for two and a duck respectively, with one wicket each going to Laver and Cotter. This brought Bowes and Quaid in to join Tilsey at four for 49. The two managed to steady the ship and take the English to lunch with a score on 96, with Tildesley approaching his half-century. Bosanquay was out with only two runs added after the break, bowled by Laver. Gunn joined Tildesley, and the two took the score past 100. Tildesley then brought up his half-century, only to depart soon after to 56, caught by Duff off Laver. Next ball, new batsman Jessup attempted a wild slog, but was clean bowled, giving Laver his fifth wicket of the innings. Gunn, who was batting slowly, was joined by Lilly with a score at 7 for 119. Lilly batted pluckily and dominated a 20-run stand before Cotter managed to bowl Gunn for 8. Rhodes then joined Lilly and the two put on 48 for the ninth wicket, with Cotter being taken off due to some wild bowling leading to many buys being scored. Eventually though, Labour dismissed first Lilly for 37 and then Rhodes for 29, ending the English innings on 196 just before team. Labour finished with the outstanding figures of 7 for 64 of 32 overs with 14 maidens, 
His consistent lengths and subtle variations doing the damage, although Cotter's pace at the other end also contributed to rattling the batsman's confidence as he finished with 3 for 64. With the English only posting what was considered a disappointing score, the Australians had the opportunity to take a big advantage in the match. Duff took strike and scored a single in the first over, was then caught low down at short leg in the second over off Arnold. This brought Hill in to join Trumper. Trumper was in imperious form, striking three boundaries, but then disaster struck as he strained his back. This caused him to retire hurt and take no further part in the game, a great blow to the Australian cause. Noble joined Hill with a score on 23. The two handled the bowling comfortably, with few bowlers causing issues. Rhodes was miserly, but the bowlers rotated the other end like Jessup, Arnold and Gunn, all failed to contain the batsmen. Bosenquay was also tried, but stuck with leg breaks and didn't bowl the googly, which had been so successful in Australia. The two batsmen were together for over an hour and a half as they put on a century stand. Both reached 50 and looked set to see out the day. Here, Jackson turned to himself just before stumps. With his first ball, he had Noble caught behind for 50. Armstrong came to the crease and ran a leg by, but off the fourth ball, he was bowled by Jackson for 57. Darling came to the crease and survived ball five, but not ball six as he was bowled for a duck. Jackson, taking three wickets and over, had swung the momentum of the game. Cotter joined Armstrong and the two managed to get to stumps without further loss at four, effectively five down with Trumper's injury, for 158, still trailing the English first inning score by 38 runs. Day two commenced with Cotter going on the attack. He looked to move the score on quickly and give the Australians the lead. He struck four boundaries off one Jackson over and saw the score go up to 200. Here, Jackson replaced himself with Jessup, who managed to get Cotter to tamely hit a ball back to him to have him caught and bowled for 45. This led to a collapse, with Armstrong following soon after for 27 where he was stumped off Rhodes, whilst Arnold came on and clean bowled McLeod for four. Jackson then returned to finish off the innings, claiming the final two wickets to bowl the Australians out for 221, a lead of 25. The final wicket of Labour went to an excellent catch by Jones at slip, taking low down to the ground in his left hand. Jackson finished with the figures of 5 for 52, an excellent performance by the English captain that limited what could have been a substantial lead for the Australians. Buoyed by their efforts in restricting the Australians, the English set about putting together their second innings. They opened with Hayward and McLaren. This time Cotter bowled with a lot more control, but also less pace, meaning the batsmen were much more comfortable against him this innings. Labour also provided less of a challenge than in the first innings, with the batsmen content to leave balls outside the off stump and score when the bowlers erred straight. They managed to last the hour before lunch without losing a wicket and continued on afterwards. Here, McLaren began to be more adventurous, moving past 50 and handling a bowling attack that wasn't posing much threat with ease. With the scoring rate increasing and the partnership closing in on 100, Darling turned to Armstrong's leg breaks. He was encouraged to bowl a defensive line wide outside leg stump with three short legs. The batsmen refused to engage with this, meaning whilst Armstrong bowled maiden after maiden, the batsmen were at little risk of getting out. The pressure of scoring was relieved at the other end, as particularly McLaren made the most of some loose bowling with some strong drives. After an hour of the bowling crease, Armstrong finally managed to get Hayward to play a false stroke, having him caught by dialing a deep square leg for 47. He'd been in the crease for two and a half hours and shared a 145 run opening stand with McLaren. Tilsley replaced him and immediately the overall scoring rate was raised, with the new batsman finding it much easier to score against Armstrong than the openers. Meanwhile, McLaren soon afterwards brought up his century, his first made in England and his fifth overall, the most by any player in tests. The batsman continued through the tea break and went past 200 before McLaren was finally out, caught by Duff off Labour, having hit 21 boundaries, most with drives and pulls, in making 140. 
his highest test score. Jones joined Tildesley and the two put on a further 54 runs before Jones was bowled for 30 by the seldom used bowling of Duff. This brought Jackson to the crease to join Tildesley. Tildesley went past the 50 mark for the second time in the test, was out shortly after, becoming Duff's second victim when he was caught and bowled with the score at 301. Bosenquay could only manage six before his stumps were scattered by Cotter. Play ended shortly after, with Rhodes having joined Jackson at the crease, the English at 5 for 318, with a commanding 292 run lead going into the final day. Day 3 commenced after a slight shower, with the English looking to bat for a period of time to take the game out of the Australians' reach before declaring. The shower had freshened up the pitch and, if anything, made it easier for batting. Jackson and Rhodes faced little difficulty in scoring quickly, with the Australian bowlers unable to make any serious incursions in the morning's play. Labour was steady, but others, such as Cotter and Armstrong, came in for more punishment, with Cotter in particular not bowling with anywhere near the pace of the opening day. Jackson moved past 50 within an hour of the commencement of play, whilst the partnership would go beyond a century when Jackson declared the innings closed on 426. Jackson ended on 82 not out, whilst Rhodes scored 39, with the two batsmen putting on an unbeaten 113 for the sixth wicket. This left the Australians with 401s to win, or, more realistically, four and a half hours to bat to save the match. They were already at a disadvantage due to the absence of Trumper, still unable to bat due to his strained back from the first day. Darling promoted himself to open with Duff, and the two batted comfortably on the benign surface, managing to make it to lunch without loss with the score on 21. Jackson tried four bowlers, but none posed much threat, with Arnold struggling with a thumb injury. Following the break, little change, with the openers moving past a 50-run partnership with ease. At this point, Bosenquay started to cause some problems. With Rose at the other end keeping it tight, Bosenquay's variations kept the batsmen guessing. Finally, with the score on 62, Duff tamely patted one back to Bosenquay to be out for 25. This shifted the tempo of the match. Noble joined his captain and moved to seven with great difficulty before he was stumped off Bosenquay. Darling followed soon after for 40, clean bowled by a leg break when he was playing for the googly. Hill then fell to an exceptional catch, attempting to hit Bosenquay back over his head, only for the bowler to leap high in the air and take it one-handed. The Australians, having looked safe only 40 minutes previously, were now teetering at four for 93. This soon became five down when Armstrong was caught at point by Jackson off Bosenquay, with a leg break bowler having claimed all the wickets to this point. Gregory and Cotter came together and looked to attack, putting on 39 quick runs before Cotter was bowled by Rhodes, giving the left armour his first wicket. Labour came and went quickly, stumped off Bosenquay. McLeod joined Gregory and the two held out to tee, with Gregory moving to a rapid-fire half-century with eight boundaries. With the light beginning to fade and rain clouds brewing, there were Australian hopes that the match might be called off. However, the final two wickets fell quickly after the resumption, with Gregory caught for 51 and McLeod the last out LBW. Bose and Quay claimed the final two wickets to finish with an outstanding 8 for 107 from 33 overs. All these wickets came with leg break deliveries, but the fear that the batsman had of the googly meant that they couldn't trust which way the ball would spin, leading to indecision and ultimately dismissals. He was well supported by the pressure built by Rhodes at the other end, taking a miserly 1 for 58 off his 30 overs. The Australian innings ended on 188, giving the English a resounding 213 run victory. To that insult to injury, a thunderstorm rolled across the ground five minutes after the completion of the match, which ultimately would have saved the Australians if they could have held on. The Australians had four matches between the first and second tests. They won the first of these against Cambridge University, but the remainder were draws, all categorised by the inability of the Australian bowlers to create much inroads into batting lineups, with more than half of the opposition innings ending in declarations. 
This meant that the Australians were still in a funk heading into the second test at Lords. A boost to the Australians came with a return to fitness of Trumper, who was able to take his place in the side. They only made one change, with Hopkins coming in for Cotter, who was yet to recover his pace from the first innings of the first test. The English made two changes, with Fry returning after injury and right-arm fast-medium bowler Schofield Hay from Yorkshire coming in for his first matches against Australia, having debuted on a tour of South Africa in 1898-99. They took the places of Jessup and Gunn, with the selectors making the decision to continue to leave out Hurst on account of concerns around his leg. Jackson won the toss for the second time and chose to bat on a slow but not difficult pitch. England opened with McLaren and Hayward, whilst the Australians started with a steady bowling of McLeod and Labour. The batsmen were cautious, not trusting the pitch but given the large amounts of rain in the lead up to the match. The batsmen made their way to 38 before Labour was replaced by Noble, who nearly claimed the first wicket McLaren hit a ball in the air to cover point, where the usually safe Gregory dropped the chance. Other than that drop, the excellent Australian fielding played a role in keeping the scoring down, with only 59 runs coming in the first hour and a half. Darling turned to Duff, who finally got the first breakthrough, trapping Hayward LBW for 19 with a ball that kept low. He was replaced by Tildesley, who showed more energy in looking to score than his predecessor, taking the total along to 86 at lunch, with McLaren having moved to his half-century. Following the break, Darling turned to the bowling of Hopkins. With McLaren having moved to 56, Hopkins bowled a short one that McLaren attempted to hook. The ball kept low, however, and managed to bowl him, with the second wicket falling at 97. This brought Fry to the crease. Once again, progress was slow as the score crept past 100. Noble was bowling tightly, but without luck. Tilsey was more expansive than the two batsmen as the total approached 150. Labour was brought back and nearly bowled Fry before Armstrong got the breakthrough, having Tildesley caught at short leg for 43. This brought Jackson to the crease with a score at 3 for 149. As at Trent Bridge, the batsmen were finding it difficult to score off Armstrong's leg breaks pitched outside leg stump. As such, the score could only reach 175 as T was taken, although the English made it there without further loss. Following T, the score again moved on slowly, passing 200 before Labour had Jackson caught by Armstrong at slip having taken 90 minutes to make 29. Neither Jones or Bozenquay could reach double figures, with a wicket apiece to Laver and Armstrong, whilst at the other end Fry passed 50. He got more support from Rhodes, and the two looked to be getting through to stumps before a double strike just before the end of the day saw them both dismissed, with Fry caught behind for 73, before Rhodes was bowled off the last ball of the day for 15. Both wickets fell to Hopkins, giving him three so far for the innings. The English ended the day on 8 for 258, with many pundits believing they had squandered the advantage of winning the toss by not batting more quickly. There was a heavy shower following play on day one, but the second day began in bright sunshine. This had the effect of making the pitch more difficult as it dried out. The Australians got an immediate breakthrough, with Lily trapped LBW by McLeod for a duck. The final pair of Hay and Arnold frustrated the Australians with a 24-run partnership before Labour ended the innings with a score on 282. Labour then joined Hopkins in taking three wickets for the innings, whilst Armstrong claimed two and only went for 41 runs in his 30 overs. With the pitch now challenging the batsmen, the English were hopeful of bowling Australia out for around 100. However, the Australian openers Duff and Trumper attacked the bowling, making it difficult for them to settle on a challenging length. Hay in particular came in for punishment, with Duff striking him back over his head into the pavilion, whilst Trumper flicked him over the leg side boundary. With the score racing past 50 in under half an hour, Jackson brought himself on and was immediately successful, clean bowling Trumper for 31. Hill came in at 3 and struck Rhodes to the league boundary, but was then out for 7 off Jackson with a score on 73. Duff was out the next over without addition for 27, caught behind off Rhodes. 
Noble failed to make double figures when he became Jackson's third victim, leaving the Australians at four for 95. Armstrong and Darling then combined to take the Australians to 110 at lunch. Following the break, the two managed to move the score past the follow-on mark of 123, with Darling striking Jackson on the roof of the grandstand before Armstrong was given out LBW to Jackson for 33. Gregory could only manage five before he became Rhodes' second victim. This brought Hopkins to the crease. He shared a 33-run stand with his captain to take the score on 171 before being dismissed, sparking a collapse of 4 for 10 to end the innings on 181. Darling was 8th out, top scoring for the innings with 41 before he scored a cover point off Arnold. The final two wickets were claimed by Hay, but the stars were Jackson and Rhodes, with 4 and 3 wickets respectively. The English started their innings with two hours remaining in the day's play and a 101-run lead. The pitch was playing a lot better than at the start of the day, but this didn't benefit Hayward, who was caught at slip by Laver off McLeod for eight. Tildesley came in at number three and played second fiddle as McLaren played with much more freedom than the first innings, and was particularly harsh on Laver, striking him to the off-boundary on multiple occasions. He was lucky to survive a caught and bold chance for McLeod, however. Tildesley slowly built his confidence and looked set when he hit two cover drives of four off Noble, but was bowled off the inside edge for 12 attempting the same stroke. He was replaced by Fry at 2 for 63. McLaren to continue to push the score on, striking Armstrong for boundaries through the leg side and bringing up his second 50 of the match. The score cruised past 100 and McLaren moved on to 79 before he was bowled by Armstrong, who adjusted his outside leg line to be more attacking of the stumps. This drew even more benefits next ball, when he spun a beautiful leg break that pitched on leg and hit the top of off, sending Jackson back for a golden duck. Jones could only manage five before he became Armstrong's third victim, but the end of the day prevented him from playing any more havoc, with the English finishing on five for 151, with Fry 36 not out, a lead of 252, giving them a strong platform to push for a win on the final day. However, the weather had other ideas, with rainfall so bad that the game was called off by 1.30pm the next day. The Australians probably breathed a sigh of relief, given they would be facing a similar challenge to what they had in the first match. It meant that the series scoreline would remain at 1-0 to England before the third test at Headingley in early July. This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1905 Tour of England. Part two, where we see if the Australians can come from behind to win the series, will be out next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.